Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have the president of Theopolis, Peter Lightheart, and Dr. Alistair Roberts discussing the texts for the fourth Sunday in Advent 2018. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to let you know about a big giveaway we're doing right now. If you sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race between now and December 24th, 2018, you will be entered to win Peter Lightheart's two-volume commentary on the book of Revelation. We will be announcing the winner on Christmas Day, and we are very thrilled to be giving this set to someone. So if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, there's a link down there in the show notes for you, and we'll look forward to continue serving you through our videos, podcasts, and articles. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these texts. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Alastair Roberts by phone from England. And today we're discussing the texts for the fourth Sunday in Advent for the year 2018. That's December 23rd. And the readings for this coming Sunday are Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. Uh, the well-known passage about Bethlehem being the location of the birth of the Messiah, then Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10, and a portion of Luke's uh, birth story, Luke 1, verses 39 to 45, with an additional possibility of verses 46 through 56. Those are optional verses if uh, you want to read those. As in the past with uh, Advent readings, of course, these are about the Lord's coming, but as we get closer to the celebration of Christmas, the passages become more focused on the, specifically on the birth of Christ and more or less explicit prophecies in the Old Testament reading of the birth of Christ, and then passages that have to do with the first coming of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 10 is about the uh, obedience of the Son uh, in his incarnation, and uh, Luke 1, of course, is part of the birth story of Jesus. So uh, as we're, uh, the variety of uh, the, the uh, passages that have been used in Advent have been looking at a variety of different comings of the Lord. The Lord's coming at the end, the Lord's coming in AD 70. Now we're looking more particularly at these passages at the coming of the Lord in the Incarnation. And again, Micah is the, a well-known passage, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the, lands of, uh, among the cities of Judah, yet out of you shall come a ruler in Israel, there's a promise of a, a new Davidic king coming out of the city of David. But I think to, to get the full effect of that passage, we have to put it in the context of Micah's prophecy as a whole. And like other prophets, Micah is uh, prophesying not only a, a, about the personal sins of Israel or Judah, in per, particularly Judah, but he's talking about the national and political circumstances of Judah. And this particularly comes out in chapter 3, where he addresses the, the kings, the rulers of, of Israel, and condemns them for their injustice, uh, and describes them as being uh, vicious, virtually cannibalistic. They slaughter uh, the people like sacrifices. They strip their skin off. They chop them up to cook them. Uh, they establish the city of Jerusalem on the blood of victims. And uh, Micah confronts them in these, in these injustices. Uh, and 
maybe even worse than that, he confronts the, uh, the, is the situation with the prophets. The prophets are supposed to be kind of the conscience to the kings. They're supposed to be speaking truth to power, but in this case, they don't. They become like the court prophets of paganism, court prophets who just support whatever the king wants to do. And so the, the prophets, instead of confronting the kings who are um, slaughtering the people, um, just uh, give them their approval. They become yes men to whatever the kings want to do. So um, obviously there are other things in the context that are relevant to Micah 5, but those are that's an uh, important part of the, the situation, the context within which Micah gives his prophecy of a coming Davidic king. And it establishes a, a political context for the prophecy of a, the birth of this, of this ruler from, from uh, Bethlehem. That political context, of course, gets... Uh, it's it's also part of the context of Jesus' birth. Matthew is the gospel is the evangelist who quotes from Micah five, uh, and it's in the context of Herod uh, and the wise men. The wise men are looking for the Messiah. They want to know where the Christ will be born, and Herod consults with the scribes, and they tell him from Micah five that he'll be born in Bethlehem. So this passage gets quoted in in Matthew, but it's in a context again where you have a cannibal king who slaughters. His people and Jesus is coming into the world as the true king who's going to bring his own kingdom, God's kingdom, into the world. The background of Micah's prophecy is also helpful in thinking about some of the Old Testament resonances that are at play within this event, particularly the death of Rachel. So, in the previous passage in chapter four, you see references to the Tower of the Flock um, or Tower of Eda, and then the daughter of Zion who's struggling in birth, and then this birth, these birth pangs that come across upon Israel through the invasion of Assyria are actually going to be birth pangs that, or actually pangs that will yield birth. And this one who is born is associated with um, the Tower of Eda in um, verse 8 of chapter 4, but also with Bethlehem um, Ephrath, which we see is the death place of um, Rachel in the book of Genesis. And that particular story gives us a sense of what is going on in the coming of Christ and this promised ruler. He's little among the thousands of Judah, much as Benjamin was born at this particular point um, as one who was little. It's associated with David, who was the least among his brethren. And yet this one is going to be the one who's going to be great and the one who's going to lead his people. Your reference to the Assyrians is uh, significant. Uh, they come in at the end of verse 5. If you read uh, the, the assigned reading, this goes through, the, I think, the first line of verse 5 of chapter 5. But then if you read on to the next couple of verses, it's clear that the situation is, is the Assyrian crisis which is the same situation in which Isaiah is prophesying early in Isaiah and the prophecy about the virgin conceiving uh, and uh, uh, bearing a, a, a son and the prophecies about the Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah are set in that same context. That's, where, that's the context in which Isaiah is prophesying. So uh, a number of the important messianic uh, prophecies, the ones that get uh, uh, caught up and put into music by uh, by handle, uh, are originate in this in this crisis. The Assyrians are pressuring Judah 
And this is the Lord's instrument of judgment against the kings of Judah and the prophets who have become corrupted uh, and uh, idolatrous. And again, that that highlights the political dimensions of the coming of Jesus, which uh, I think I've ranted on the podcast before about uh, uh, the uh, the loss of that dimension in a lot of Christmas hymnody, um, and the contrast I think is that's there between the Advent hymnody, which often includes references to these to these historical circumstances. There, there are references to uh, Jerusalem pining. Uh, there's references to Zion waiting for the coming of the Lord. And so there's some allusions to these political circumstances that are, are the background of these prophecies. But when you get to the Christmas uh, hymns, uh, often that political dimension is left out. But I think that's really important to have in view when we're looking at the New Testament passages that describe the birth of Christ. Uh, he comes as the king. He comes announcing a kingdom. And he comes in a situation where there already is a king of the Jews who is acting like the uh, vicious kings of, of Micah's prophecy. And Jesus is coming to um, to establish an alternative kingdom that will be uh, become the kingdom that uh, fills the whole earth. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the significance of the themes of shepherding, which are present within this particular context. David being a shepherd who comes from the context of Bethlehem, um, this theme of the feeding of the flock, the coming of this great shepherd who's going to arrive at the tower of the flock. Right. I'm sure you'll want to add to this, but uh, the, uh, the point to make is that shepherding in the Old Testament is an image of kingship, as it is throughout the ancient Near East. Uh, shepherding is not what we think of as um, pastoral care. It's not uh, the kind of care that we think of that we think of in church, which is kind of nurturing. Rather, it's political care. It's political leadership. And so that uh, to call the uh, to call Israel a flock and the leader that's going to come from Bethlehem a shepherd is to highlight again that political dimension. I wouldn't want to play off the two two, two meanings of shepherd uh, too starkly, though. I think that the uh, some of the portraits that we have of royal shepherding in the Old Testament suggest something much more nurturing and personally caring than our, our models of politics tend to be. You think of Moses as describing himself as a as a nursing father who uh, cares for Israel as they come out of Egypt and go through the wilderness. Uh, you think of the king in uh, Psalm 72 who is described as looking out for the interests of the poor and caring for the poor. So there's a there's a more personal dimension to kingship as uh, as a royal as a royal image in the Old Testament than than there is to our conceptions of uh, our, our conceptions of rule as an exercise of sheer power rulers as distant figures. So I, I don't want to play those off too much against each other, but still the uh, shepherding is not is not a priestly image in the Old Testament so much as a kingly image. I was wondering particularly about the connection of shepherding and Bethlehem, um, David being a shepherd, but also the sheep associated with Bethlehem um, being particularly seen as sacrificial animals for the um, temple mm. and also the fact that the sign of Christ's coming is the sign of a child that's born given to shepherds in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Right. And wondering whether there's something within the Old Testament context that gives us a ground for this association. Yeah, nothing nothing comes to mind that 
hints specifically. And were you having a thought about that? Not particularly, except that there are suggestions that such a thing existed within perhaps taking all this evidence together. I'm just wondering how we might flesh that out a bit. Yeah. The shepherd's appearance in Luke is usually taken as a sign of the Lord's announcement to people who are lowly and despised and kind of marginal characters. And so the the fact that the the birth of Jesus is announced to shepherds is a is a sign and that fits with Luke's themes. It's a sign of God's attention to the to the outcasts. Um but I I do think that there's a the other dimension to that is Israel is a is a flock and Israel has shepherds and so there's a I think there is this um this other dimension to it that uh, uh that that needs to be worked into that image. I I, I um I'm not sure I'm not sure entirely how to do that but I think that 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 political dimension shepherding as kingship is part of the picture there. The other question I'd be interested to explore is the significance of the statement the one to be ruler in Israel whose going for goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. How much theological weight should we put upon that statement? I would say that the that a lot of weight <laughs> to answer the specific question you have uh, uh, other passages in the prophets that talk about the coming of the shepherd, and you have this interplay between uh, David, a new David as shepherd, and Yahweh himself as the one who's going to come and take over shepherding Israel, because the shepherds are so, they've turned from the Lord so fully that uh, the Lord himself is going to take over care for his people. So if you put the prophecies of a good the coming good shepherd together you you do have this uh, christological uh, image of Yahweh who is also the son of David in the new testament that is is fulfilled literally with Yahweh becoming the son of David in the incarnation so i i think that that um the hint in Micah 5 that you have a uh, that this is this is uh the eternal god coming to shepherd his people that i think that's there the other thing that i i think is probably going on is the the language of uh, going out and coming in is often military language in the Old Testament. And so his goings forth have been of old from everlasting is not simply to say that he's been around a long time, but it's to say that he is and has been the uh, warrior of Israel from everlasting. Thinking about um, a distant uh, echo of Exodus when the Lord as divine warrior leads Israel out of Egypt delivers them from a vicious king in Egypt. He's going to do the same in the incarnation. He's going to lead the true Israel out from under the vicious King Herod and the vicious shepherds of Israel. And uh, he's going to lead them into a toward a promised land. So there's, a, I think, a distant echo of the idea of God as divine warrior going out uh, to deliver his people. This is a theme that could perhaps lead us into a discussion of um, Luke 1. But when we're talking about the reference to the one who is in labor bearing a son, we have the echo of the story of Rachel and her struggling in birth. But also we have something that would seem to have a very particular reference to the specific woman who bears this son, Mary. How do we hold together these typological images and the figure of the woman that functions within the Old Testament and the New and is often very prominent as a symbol and the particular 
um, woman of Mary, who is often given an excessive attention by Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, but often ignored in her or under underestimated and understated in her significance within a Protestant context. How can a proper understanding of typology help us to handle verses such as this, which bring together that great symbol of the woman with the specific woman Mary, without collapsing all of that symbolism into her as an individual? Yeah. Well, I think that your your description really gets you're you're asking a question, but it really gets to the answer that uh, uh, Mary is the culmination of a series of, of types: the barren woman, uh, the barren women of the Old Testament, who are pointing forward to the Virgin Mother of uh, the New Testament, and also Israel as either the barren or the uh, the bereft mother who is waiting for new children to be born. That's an image that's. As you said, it's alluded to in Micah 5, it's used in Isaiah also. Uh, thinking about Mary in that typological context uh, is, the, uh, is the direction toward, a, toward an answer to that question. When I was working on uh, Revelation 5 for my Revelation commentary, that was a Revelation 12 for my Revelation commentary, that was a, that was a prominent question. Who is the woman in heaven? Is this Mary or is this uh, something else? And I concluded that it's Israel gen in general. Uh, it's uh, Israel's history portrayed as a birth story, Israel laboring throughout her history to give birth to the Messiah. But Mary is the culmination of that history. She kind of embodies that vocation in a particular person, as in a, in, as in a similar way, the king embodies Israel um, as the son. Mary comes to embody Israel's vocation to bring the Messiah into the world. So um, that, w that, that way of looking at Mary gives her, I think, a proper prominence, but it doesn't, you have to make a number of leaps to come to the conclusion that she is immaculately conceived, that she is uh, assumed into heaven, uh, that she is uh, a mediatrix. Those don't follow at all from that, uh, that idea that she's the culmination. And I think that what happens instead is that you have Mary as the, as the antitype of a lot of these Old Testament types of particular women and of Israel, but then she becomes the, herself the type of the church as mother who's uh, giving birth to sons of God, who's, uh, as Paul says in uh, Galatians, uh, forming Christ within the church. So uh, Paul himself, Paul describes himself as a mother who's laboring until Christ is formed in you or among you. Uh, so then uh, Mary stands as kind of the hinge the culmination of Israel's vocation, but then also a an image of the church's vocation. Let's let's talk about the gospel reading since you uh, since you brought that up. This is uh, of course a part uh, part of the birth story. This is uh, the section that we have for this this week is about Mary's visit to Elizabeth and uh, the encounter between uh, John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb and Jesus in Mary's womb. As uh, many commentators have pointed out, there's a there's a, a an allusion to the a story of David leaping and dancing before the ark. Uh, as the ark comes into Jerusalem, David uh, dances and leads leads the procession uh, with joy that the Lord is coming into his throne, uh, coming to his throne. And John is uh, doing the same here in the womb of Elizabeth as he leaps uh, in uh, before Mary. Mary functioning as a kind of uh, as a kind of ark, 
she's been overshadowed by the Spirit in order to conceive Jesus. And so um, there's her womb is a, a, the place where the Lord dwells for this, for this nine-month period. Again, that, that's, that kind of typology is sometimes used by Roman Catholics to, to, as an argument for uh, perpetual virginity. I know that Scott Hahn makes that case that Mary, is, Mary has become so holy because of the presence of the Christ. She is a, she is a vessel, uh, kind of a temple vessel, an, an ark. And so Joseph would have avoided sexual contact with her. Um, again, I think that has, that is a, that's a typological and conceptual leap that doesn't, that the text doesn't indicate. I think there are indications quite the contrary throughout the Gospels about Jesus' brothers and so on. But I do think the typology is there that, um, Jesus is the, uh, Jesus is the Lord, as Elizabeth says, and I think we need to, uh, take, uh, that term in its full theological sense. Uh, this is not just a title of respect. It's not that Jesus is a master, but she uh, she's saying that Jesus is the Lord. Um, Kevin Rowe, Duke at Duke, has written a number of essays on uh, the, uh, and I think it's incorporated in one of his books, on, on the uh, kind of proto-Trinitarian theology that you find in the early chapters of Luke. And he thinks we need to take uh, Kurios, Lord, throughout these chapters in its uh, in its sense, this is Yahweh himself present as uh, as a man in the womb of Mary. The angel's declaration of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, do you think we should connect that with the events of Pentecost, that this is a sort of Pentecost for Mary, as the Holy Spirit comes upon her at the beginning of Luke, as at the beginning of Acts, the Spirit will come upon the bride of the church? Uh, yeah, I think that's that that fits in a kind of conceptual sense. It it uh, it's a similar kind of in event. The Spirit comes to overshadow and indwell Mary, as the Spirit comes upon the apostles. As you said, it also fits structurally. Um, then you have um, a cluster of appearances of the Spirit in the early chapters of Luke. We'll look at one next time when we look at the uh, Song of Simeon. In Luke 2, uh, where Simeon is also led by the Spirit, Simeon is filled with the Spirit to uh, acknowledge Jesus and to sing uh, what we know as the Nunc Dimittis. So the Spirit, Spirit's work of the early, early in Luke is anticipating or uh, foreshadowing. It, it's structurally parallel to the activity of the Spirit early in Acts. So I think, yeah, I think that's, uh, there's a Pentecostal dimension to it. And then you can, I think you could trace the the work of the Spirit throughout Luke that would uh, fill that out. Uh, the Spirit is overshadows Mary from the very beginning. Jesus is a child of the Spirit. He's conceived by the Spirit. The Father brings the Son into the world through the agency of the Spirit. And then the Spirit anoints Jesus at his baptism, and the Spirit is the one that provokes Jesus and moves him as he goes from place to place. Uh, more prominently than the other Gospels, the Spirit is the, uh, the, Spirit is the prompt for Jesus' ministry. The greeting of that's given to Mary is one that brings to mind a number of statements from the Old Testament and elsewhere. The statement made by Deborah and Barak in their song about Jael, and also the statement that's made about Judith um, by Uzziah in the book of Judith, I think it's chapter 13. And in both cases, there's this woman that's set out as highly favored among women, or um, 
that's distinguished among other women. Then we have the connections, I think, with the story of Hannah, which become more pronounced in the Magnificat, which is very similar to Hannah's own song or prayer. And here I think there might also be connections with the story of the Exodus, the hiding um, of the woman of um, the tribe of Levi, who's Elizabeth, the, wasn't she the Elishaba was the wife of Aaron, I think, the, the one who was the matriarch of the Levites. And then Mary associated with Miriam. You mentioned the Hannah connection and the Magnificat in particular. You have, in both cases, you have a description of an overturning of the current order of Israel. Mary looks forward to the casting down of those who are exalted uh, and the lifting of those who are humbled and those who are rich go away empty-handed, those who are hungry are filled with good things. There's this overturning of uh, the order of Israel, and that's Hannah thinks that Hannah hopes for the same thing from her son. She hopes that her son's birth will be a sign of that uh, revolution, overturning of the order of Israel. And I think it's it, it's important to see those both of those songs in the specific context in which they're sung. Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song is sung in a context where the high priest is Eli, and then uh, Hophni and Phineas are the priests that serve with him. Eli is a weak high priest. His sons are abusive high priests, uh, abusive priests. Israel is in need of um, a revolution. They, things need to be overturned. Um, it's not the the uh, her hope is not that there'll be kind of perpetual revolution. That just because people are in authority, they need to be tossed down. That's not what Hannah or Mary is thinking. Rather, they're living in a situation where. Uh, the the uh, proud, the abusive, the the ungodly are on the high places, and they're looking for the Lord to cast down those wicked rulers and exalt the humble who are clinging to Him. So uh, this these these passages in the Magnificat is sometimes taken as kind of a brief for liberation theology, and there is a, definitely a kind of liberation element to it, but it's in specific circumstances where the there are wicked rulers in high places. The actors that appear within this particular section are interesting. Um, first of all, we have the angel Gabriel who appears on the scene. Then we have a significant emphasis upon the role of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, and later on we'll see the Holy Spirit um, filling characters like Simeon and Anna. The Holy Spirit hasn't been active in this same way within the much of the Old Testament. And then we also see the prominence of women at this particular point. It seems to me that these, the presence of these actors is significant. And it's important to reflect upon why do we see them at this particular juncture. In the case of Gabriel, um, I think... Um, James Jordan has suggested the significance of Gabriel as an angel associated with the nations and that this is a sign that something is stirring, that there's about to be a, a change in the, in the cosmic order, um, the appearance of this angel at this point. And then in the case of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the context of the advent of Christ is 
profoundly significant. The whole work of Christ is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit throughout. But at this particular juncture, we see a startling um, prominence of the Holy Spirit's work that suggests that there is, again, something stirring, that something about the order that has existed is about to radically shift and change. And finally, the presence of women at this point it's something that we see again at the beginning of the story of the Exodus, the Hebrew midwives, um, Jochebed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, and at the beginning of the story of the kingdom with the story of Hannah. In all these cases, at the very start, at the point of the very gestation of God's new work, there is a, an emphasis upon women and here upon the Holy Spirit as well. And it would seem to me that we should connect these events to see between them some sense of the way that God works within the world, that he does not necessarily start with a bang on the world stage, but there is this secret gestation of his work in response to private prayers in many cases, through the struggling of Elizabeth, who was um, childless, and through the struggle of Hannah against um the other wife of Elkanah, Penina, and with the Hebrew midwives and their struggle against Pharaoh or all these other characters whose plots and their narratives might seem to be minor and insignificant, they are now propelled onto the very front stage of God's work, which is not the same thing as the front stage of human history as we perceive it. Right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right that you have uh, it starts with a woman and a child. That's the kind of initiating work of at uh, at the junctures at the at the transition points in in uh, Old Testament history. But ultimately, going back to Genesis three, where it's the seed of the woman who's going to be the one who crushes the serpent's head. Uh, you can make a make a similar point, although it's not exactly the same thing. But you make a similar point with well with the end of Luke. Obviously, with the women who come to the tomb, they're the ones who become the first evangelists of the resurrection. And um, uh, Mary's presence among the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts, um, she doesn't play a prominent role in the rest of Acts, but she is there when the Spirit comes. So at this, at this moment of new birth, um, there's, uh, the mother is present. Frequently, there's a mother with child. And as you say, the Spirit is, uh, is linked up with that. Uh, we should uh, move on to the... Epistle reading, this is a part of Hebrews, obviously. Hebrews is uh, dis describing the superiority of the New Covenant to the Old in the midst of a time of persecution and pressure for the early Christians to revert to um, Judaism. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the opening verses of chapter 10, which is uh, not part of the reading, but the background to the reading, has to do with the contrast between the ineffective offerings of the Old Testament and the effective offering of the New. The offerings of the Old Testament did not take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. Uh, that seems to be the writer of the Hebrew, to the Hebrews' uh, implication. Um, but now there is a better offering uh, that does, uh, doesn't just cleanse the flesh, but cleanses uh, the conscience. And I think there are several things to say about that before we get to the actual portion of the uh, text that's a uh, portion of the chapter that's assigned for this Sunday. It does seem like the writer is saying that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin ever. 
it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, verse 4 says. And that seems to be an, a, a general statement, not just uh, it's, it's no longer possible, but it was impossible even from the beginning. And yet, the text in Leviticus suggests that the blood of bulls and goats do have some kind of atoning effect. And I think the couple ways to put that together, one is to use the contrast of the writer, that the writer of Hebrews himself uses, not here but elsewhere, between offerings and purity rites that uh, cleanse the flesh and rites or, or an action of God that cleanses the conscience. Uh, so it's a flesh and conscience contrast. Uh, the Old Testament rites were effective in making the, the person clean in body to uh, uh, present himself in the sanctuary, but doesn't, didn't go into the inner person and cleanse his conscience. And I think the other way to reconcile that is to see the Old Covenant offerings as anticipations, memorials, uh, pre-memorials, in a sense, of the coming of Christ. So it's, it's the death of Christ that is the atoning act. The blood of moles and goats never took away sin. It's always the blood of Jesus. But in the Old Covenant system, you have these enactments that shed the blood of animals that anticipate the coming of Christ, that are a sign of the of the a sign before the before Yahweh of the coming ultimate sacrifice, uh, and for that reason they have an effect. Not because the blood of an animal itself is effective, but because that blood of the animal is a an effective sign of the uh, coming Messiah. Should we read the references to burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin restrictively, um, recognizing that there are sorts of sacrifices that aren't included um, as those which God did not desire? Yeah, that's the way that uh, Jim Jordan has taken the passage. He said that there, this is listing various forms of animal offering, but not the trespass offering. So God is rejecting other sorts of offerings. The burnt offering would be the ascension offering, the whole burnt offering. The implied sacrifice for sin uh, refers to uh, the purification offering. Uh, sacrifice, the term sacrifice by itself, refers to the peace offering. But the one kind of animal offering that's not included is the trespass offering, which is uh, does have a unique kind of place in the Old Covenant system uh, because it's the, the one offering that is offered for deliberate high-handed sins. So sins of trespass, uh, the, sin, the sin offering is offered for sins of inadvertent sins or sins of wandering, and it cleanses those. But sins of trespass, sins where somebody deliberately treads on God's holy things, uh, that requires a trespass offering. And so Jim has argued that, yeah, there's this, there's this silence about the one kind of offering that is actually needed. Adamic sin is a trespass, and that's what needs to be atoned for, and it's atoned for by the trespass offering that Jesus offers in his own, with his own blood. Within this passage, it's chapter 10 of Hebrews, there is a lot of attention given to the body of Jesus Christ, a body you have prepared for me or made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And later on, um, this living way that is consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. That sacrificial theme that is explored is something that does lead us to reflect upon bodies, upon flesh. And what is it about Christ's flesh in particular that is significant here? Um, is it merely the fact that he shares flesh with us, as um, 
it talks about earlier in the book of Hebrews, or is there something more to it than that? Well, that relates to what I was just going to point out, that there's an, uh, an interesting shift in the, or interesting change of the, in the quotation from the psalm. Uh, psalm 40, in its original uh, Hebrew, doesn't talk about a body at all. It talks about, my ear you have opened. Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but my ear you have opened. You can say that's part of a body, which is true, <laughs> but the terminology is different, and uh, the the allusion there is to the opening of the ear as a, a sign of uh, obedience. Uh, and I think the contrast is between offerings that are made by offerings of animals. Those are the kinds of sacrifices that the Lord doesn't seek, and then the offering that the Lord does seek is the offering of the open ear, which is the offering of obedience. So that's in the original. Uh, Psalm 40, that's what's that's the contrast that's in view. Uh, when you introduce the body, it seems like you have, uh, I mean, that, I think the, the reference to the body is what uh, makes this a, uh, a fourth Sunday of Advent reading. Uh, a body you have prepared sounds like an incarnational theme and presents the incarnation. If you, if you read Hebrews 10 along with Psalm 40, then it presents the incarnation as an act of obedience. Uh, and not just in the, in the son's taking on flesh, that's an act of honor to his father, obedience to his father's commission, you could say. Uh, but uh, it's also the, the fact that he spends his bodily life in obedience. He spends his whole bodily life in uh, offering, his, uh, offering the true sacrifice of the open ear. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the, that would be one way to get at the, uh, the, the importance of Jesus' body or flesh here. Uh, you have sacrifices that involve the destruction of flesh, the dismemberment of an animal. Um, that's not the kind of offering God wants. God wants a kind of offering that's enacted in the body, a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12, again in Romans 12, 1, emphasizing the body, present your body as a living sacrifice. Do you think there's some allusion to service? with the opened ear associated with the piercing of the servant's ear with the awl. Right. And that Christ is the one who renders true service coming in the form of a servant. Right, right. Yeah, that, yeah that's good. That, that would add, add yet another dimension to it. So, um, yeah, see, I think that, yeah, the service, service in the body, and that, that service in the body culminates in Jesus' self-offering on the cross. But that's all... We make theological distinctions between the active and passive obedience, and there are maybe good reasons for that. But I think that there's um, um, there's also a reason uh, there's reason to see that entire his entire life and death as a one act of obedience. Um, what uh, maybe what Paul's referring to in Romans five when he talks about one act of obedience that uh, brings life, uh, where the one transgression of Adam brought death. So the, so the. Uh, so yes, service in the body, obedience in the body seems to be what's being highlighted by the, that reference to flesh. There is a conceptual appropriateness to the idea of the body as we've discussed here, the body being prepared. But this is also a text that comes from the Old Testament, but through the Septuagint, a particular translation of that. And we have this later on within um, Hebrews, perhaps, where there's reference to things like the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, which is an allusion back to 
Isaiah 63, but perhaps again refracted through the Septuagint where the shepherd of the sheep is brought up from the earth, not the sea. Um, how do we deal with these discrepancies between the Septuagint and the Hebrew text of the Old Testament as it is employed by the author of Hebrews and other New Testament authors to make theological points. How can we handle this appropriately? Because it seems to me that we have to recognize that it is appropriate how they're using this, but it often doesn't fit into our categories of proof texting or um, the other categories that we tend to apply when we think about the citation of Old Testament texts. And I think about, uh, I'd have several responses to that question. One would be, if you have a Hebrew text, a Masoretic text that says X, and the New Testament quotes the Septuagint translation that says something a little bit different from X, <laughs> the New Testament writer is clearly endorsing that, that Septuagint usage or that Septuagint translation, even if it's not an exact translation, there's, at, at that point at least, there's, there's an endorsement of the Greek uh, version, and I think we have to think what, how, how, the different, how the Hebrew and the Greek versions differ and how they interact with each other. Could we see it as an endorsement of a sort of um, dynamic equivalence um, of the Hebrew text, which leaves the Hebrew text distinct, and it can play off against that dynamic equivalent. But that dynamic equivalent highlights a particular dimension of the meaning that you might not see so clearly were you merely to focus upon the original literal translation. Yeah, that, that would be a way of saying it. That would be a good way of saying what I'm trying to get at. That, yeah, there's a, the, the Hebrew remains um, there, but you, you interpret it in, with an interplay with the uh, Greek quotation. I guess the, the thing I want to avoid, I don't see the... New Testament use of Septuagint as a global endorsement of the Septuagint as a superior text to the Hebrew. The New Testament writers don't always tr quote from the Septuagint for one thing. So it, it's not clear that they're using that simply as their Bible. And uh, the, uh, I mean, the, the questions about the, whether there's a, a distinct Hebrew text tradition behind parts of the Septuagint uh, that um, were different from the Masoretic text, and and so we we can have we have uh, we can back translate from the Septuagint into an original Hebrew text that's different from the Masoretic text. I think that could be true. To my mind, that doesn't that doesn't mean that we that we endorse the Septuagint as a preferable text in general to the Masoretic text. I want to say that the Masoretic text, the text that was preserved into the New Testament era, was the is the one that uh, I mean the the. Which is an it's the ancient text of the he of of Israel. That's the one that I think that is the preserved text. That's the uh, you know authoritative text, and the Septuagint is a can be a, a more or less faithful Greek version of that. And again, if we have it quoted in the New Testament, then I, we have to say that it's um, it bears the authority of Scripture. Um, I, I'm 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 hesitant to give a, a global endorsement to the Septuagint, though. I mean, I'm in agreement on that. I think. Um, we need to pay attention to the way that the New Testament authors do use the Septuagint, but I think it's very much, I've always treated it as a sort of dynamic equivalent that highlights certain points yes. that you may not see so clearly in the original. But 
as we were doing within the discussion, I think you need to show how those dynamic equivalents, as it were, um, work in, they arise from the text itself, the Old Testament text itself. They're not just impositions that are used because it's a more convenient text to use than the original. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't brought that term into the discussion, but I think that's really helpful, dynamic equivalence. I'll remember that, and I will steal it. <laughs> it's mine. All mine. Um, no, it belongs to Theopolis. It, it, it now has a Theopolis uh, copyright. <laughs> you said it on a Theopolis podcast. Anything produced on the podcast. So. Yeah, you no longer <laughs> own it. recorded. And <laughs> Kiss it goodbye. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.